the the state has allowed the periphery, the rural periphery, like insecurity to fester in the rural mm-hmm. periphery. Mm-hmm. And it's now starting yep. to yep. impact the urban areas more. Right. Yep. I mean, the Abuja Kaduna line was like very much. I mean, that was, you know, it was right. We know now it was essentially it was a hostage situation. They were trying to get a hostage exchange to to a large extent. But I think yeah. they chose that line very intentionally, not just because it's a it's a good target, um, but also like it's very symbolic. Right. This is how the northern elite travels. Um, mm. You know, you see the, yeah. the attacks in Abuja. But like, you know, I don't think. Right. I don't think that whether it's the bandits or ISWAP or Boko Haram, I don't think that we're getting like Nigeria is facing like a Taliban style takeover. Okay. So today we're joined by James Barnett, who. Um, recently finished a Fulbright Fellowship and a visiting fellowship with the Institute of African and Diaspora Studies at the University of Lagos. Um, and he's also a research fellow at CDD West Africa, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Hudson Institute in DC. Uh, and James is also um, ha- has been a collaborator um, of myself, at least, um, on a number of research projects pertaining to the subjects we'll be talking about today. So it's a delight to have this conversation with with you, James. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much, Saeed, for having me. Yeah, nice one. Um, So yeah, the conversation we're going to get into today is around the issue of, you know, what is known as banditry in Northwestern Nigeria and the, consequences of that phenomenon um, and some of the context that has given birth to it. Um, But before we get into the meat of it, James, I wanted to start easy for you by posing a multiple choice question. Um, So you guys stick with the choices (laughs) provided. So, um, and the question is, who is sponsoring you? And your research in northwestern Nigeria. Um, <laughs> and and a, it's multiple choice. It's multiple oh. choice. Yeah, yeah. All right. A, the French. B, the CIA. C, the French and the CIA. <laughs> or D, I prefer not to answer. That's uh, you, you have to have E, which is can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the that's the. I, yeah. uh, my, my my French is absolute uh, absolute shit. I can kind of read a little bit, but whenever like I try to order anything in French, it just embarrasses myself. So right. if I am a French asset, then their standards have really fallen. I think that they tend to be quite proud and would never hire a non-Francophile <laughs> or Francophile yeah. asset. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. You know, well, yeah, okay. So that leaves the other organizations as uh, possibly behind you. But yeah. I guess we can come back to that. <laughs> Good to clear that up you know, yeah. before we get started. Um, yeah, okay. Maybe a little more seriously. Uh, I guess people will be curious um, about what got you into this topic. You know, as an American um, Fulbright fellow visiting Nigeria, it, it doesn't seem like the lowest hanging fruit in a way to be talking to um, 
armed bandits. And I mean, we'll post some of the articles you've written where you've actually been interviewing some of these individuals directly. So yeah, I mean, just briefly, could you tell us a bit about how you got into this and, you know, how you ended up sitting with some of these characters? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks again, Saeed. Thanks, Emeka. Um, you know, I guess I kind of became interested and, and started pursuing this, uh, this line of inquiry or this research into the bandits kind of largely out of, um, you know, in, in a sense out of kind of ignorance and also kind of a, what I might say, like a, a parochial kind of intellectual kind of understanding of conflict, if you will, um, insofar mm -hmm. as, and I, you know, to, to elaborate when, when I came to Nigeria as a, as a Fulbright researcher at the very beginning of, of 2021, um, you know, my Fulbright research grant was, uh, written for some historical research, essentially looking at the era of military rule and kind of the institutional evolution of the Nigerian armed forces, particularly in like the Babangida and Abache eras, looking at Ekomog and stuff. Mm. And so I was pursuing that kind of historical uh, line of research. And then also I knew, right, a lot of stuff is happening in Nigeria today, kind of on the, um, you know, on the security front, the, there are all these different security challenges and coming from DC, I'd spent several years in kind of the think tank space, um, doing a lot of research on, uh, on Salafi jihadist groups, so groups linked to the Islamic State and Al Qaeda. So, you know, looking at the Boko Haram conflict and stuff. So I, you know, I knew that I would be kind of pursuing some research into the contemporary security issues as well. And, you know, my original kind of, uh, or I guess the, the issues that I knew a bit more about coming into Nigeria were, um, yeah, essentially kind of the Boko Haram ISWAP conflict and then, you know, some of this IPOB stuff as well. Um, mm. But this, you know, essentially I was getting to Nigeria like shortly after the Kankara abductions uh, in Katsina State in December 2020, which was the first mass abduction of school children by bandits, um, mm -hmm. kind of like using the the Chibok Dapchi, you know, model that Boko Haram and Iswap had used. So this is the first time that like bandits were kind of making it into international headlines, um, in large part because people thought they might be Boko Haram. Right. Mm -hmm. The international media had very little visibility on this issue of banditry in the Northwest. This had been a crisis that had been brewing for many years, but kind of hadn't been, um, yeah, kind of making headlines. And and so it was this, you know, part of it was just kind of ignorance. I was like, OK, who are these guys and, you know, what are they fighting for? What's their, you know, what's their M.O.? Um, and I was getting, you know, it, it became pretty clear that, the, okay, the, the main states they're operating in, right, there had been a bit of, of, of literature on this, you know, some different reports from uh, groups like um, uh, International Crisis Group, a couple other mm -hmm. studies, you know, there have been some good scholars who have worked on some of the farmer herder stuff uh, in the Northwest. So it, um, you know, I started looking more into this and I said, okay, you know, so this is, this is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And then I think the, the the what was the other I, I said ignorance and then kind of like parochial intellectual uh framings or whatever mm. and i think that comes from kind of like as as you know an american who studies conflict we we have a tendency to kind of it's it's we're, we're very tempted to kind of put conflicts into different boxes right so we can look at like boko haram and say okay they're a jihadist insurgency right and mm -hmm. so they look a lot like other jihadist insurgencies and this is essentially what they believe and what they're trying to achieve through their violence. And this is, you know, the types of violence that they commit. We look at something like IPOB, we say, okay, there's secessionist movement and ethno-nationalist movement. You know, mm -hmm. you look at something like, uh, you know, you could look at something like the Joss crisis uh, or, you know, the crises plural and say, okay, this is, uh, you know, kind of intercommunal violence, religious violence, right? Yeah. And so it becomes almost this like banal kind of box ticking exercise. 
Whereas what kind of interested me about the bandits was the more I looked into this, the less kind of clear the conflict became in some ways, um, mm-hmm. or rather it, be- it became clearer that the conflict can't be kind of limited to one framing of like, okay, mm-hmm. this, is this a criminal insurgency? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a criminal insurgency, but it's also one that, you know, it's also a, a kind of an interethnic conflict, but the degree of that kind of uh, the salience of the ethnicity or whatever will ebb and flow over time. Mm-hmm. Is there an ideological element to the band that's not as much as, say, to Boko Haram, but they're not totally, you know, they do have kind of some sense of fighting for a higher cause, but how much of that is sincere versus, you know, kind of uh, cynical opportunism? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are criminals, but they're also warlords. And so it, it you know, the in part because this conflict has morphed so much over time, I think it, it just became, um, you know, very interesting uh, to kind of look at and to try to kind of, you know, I mean, my, a big part of my audience, I mean, I think I, I've been very happy that I, I have like, a, you know, that Nigerians have probably read my stuff more than anyone in DC. And I think that's mm-hmm. good, because I think that, you know, I, I want to be here trying to, you know, be of some benefit to Nigerian society, mm-hmm. um, you know, en- enjoying a nice fellowship at Unilag and whatnot. Um, but I'm also, you know, writing for an international audience. And so I think one of the, the challenges, but also kind of the, the interesting things about this uh you know analyzing this banditry stuff is trying to like put it into a language that people will understand where it's like yeah. it's this but it's also this you know mm-hmm. um so that's mm-hmm. that's kind of how i got interested in the issue um and then you yeah. know I, I just started traveling in the northwest and um there are a lot of risks and challenges for researchers traveling in the northwest right. um but, but it's also like you know, in the Northeast, for example, it's a bit more structured where like if you have an invitation letter to my degree, you can co- you can fly into my degree on a commercial flight. You're there. Um, you know, generally you can't leave my degree. I was able to get out, you know, with with CDD because they're an accredited NGO. I was able to spend a bit of time in a, in a town in southern Borno. Um, mm-hmm. In the Northwest, things are like a bit less kind of organized and structured because in part mm-hmm. like the the expanse of the bandits and their operations is is more. Yes, yeah, it's, it's more expansive than that of, of Boko Haram and a bit more diffuse. So, like, mm-hmm. um, it was, you know, I found that if if I was willing to take the risk of, you know, traveling on the road or whatever, or, you know, obviously flying whenever I could, that I could get to some, you know, I, I could go to some of these states and get to some of these areas, and and um, yeah, through that, you know, you meet uh, you meet different conflict actors and mm-hmm. many many victims, um, and. Yeah. So uh, I guess there and there wasn't as much, you know, um, there weren't as many kind of uh, journalists and researchers, particularly, you know, foreign journalists and researchers kind of operating Mm -hmm. in the Northwest. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, which then means, I guess, there may be slightly lower institutional hurdles to have to to scale. Um, Yeah, I think. Yeah, to some extent, possibly. Um, Okay. you know. It's still, it's, it's, it's not travel I would do lightly. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. You know, especially sure. as a foreigner, but. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, no, that's fair enough. Uh, I think that's kind of uh, interesting background that touches on some of the sorts of themes you want to explore, um, you know, and raises the question of sort of evolving, uh, let's say, <laughs> the shifting uh, nature of the conflict and some of its complexities. So um, before going into some of that more thorny, uh, those more thorny arenas, I thought we would talk a little bit about the current context um, 
of of the crisis. So, I mean, where are we at presently? You know, as far as you know, in the in in the wake of some pretty major um, developments that have been broadly associated with conflict in that region of the country. So there was the um, kidnapping and bombing of the Abuja Kaduna line. Um, that, you know, broadly speaking, at least in popular narrative, was associated with the same conflict. Even to some extent, the jailbreak in Abuja was like um, folded within this wider discussion, you know, from some perspectives. And then there was the um, BBC documentary that triggered yep. quite a backlash from the government, um, you know, around how this is being reported. And yeah. I think since then there has been what appears to be some sort of law, um, or at least, you know, they haven't seemed to be, I guess, in the past three to four weeks, roughly month, there hasn't seemed to be the um, extent or um, sort of scale of attacks that we'd witnessed previously. So. Uh, yeah, I just wonder how you, how, where you would place the current moment in the wider trajectory of banditry. Is it a law? Is it the sort of government-imposed silence? Now that you know, media have seen some of the repercussions of getting deep into this matter, or you know, what what do you feel is going on at the moment? Yeah, great question. Um, the, the caveat here is I just came back from a couple weeks in Europe, uh, mm. you know, meeting with my CIA and French minders. Oh, by the way, no, no. the other group I, I should have included in the um, in the, your list of possible sponsors is the Fuladi hegemony. But yeah, we'll come back yeah. to that. You know, you, oh, yeah. it's, it's all one and the same. You know, <laughs> yeah, we meet at Bilderberg every year. So to be fair. Um, yeah. No, no, I, I was I was on holiday, so I'm I'm, I'm getting I'm getting back into it. A bit um the i mean there there are a couple kind of themes that you could identify in terms of like the current moment you know i'd say one um you know the bandits are already like what what we've started to see over the past year or so i think is the bandits getting bolder in a lot of operations mm -hmm. um and a big part of that is just that their influence in the countryside is already like, largely consolidated um, mm -hmm. at least in, in parts of the Northwest, you know, particularly Zampara state, parts of Katsina, Sokoto, Kaduna, Niger state, that's kind of the, the core area, parts of Kebi as well. Um, so, you know, you have, um, like what we, what we started to see is like more attacks on kind of urban areas, bolder attacks like the AK nine, you know, the, the Abuja Kaduna train mm -hmm. attack. Um, and I think that that is kind of reflected of this kind of this newer stage of the conflict, which is essentially this, um, you know, I mean, and and I'm sure I'll harp on this uh, more later in the podcast because I've been harping on it a while. But this element of warlordism, which is mm -hmm. that the bandits or certain bandits have become so powerful that they become kind of de facto sovereigns and and kind of uh, you know essentially political actors that are in control of territory and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so we we've, we've seen you know kind of uh, increasing attacks on urban areas, um, some places in in, in Zampara, like some towns south of Muso. And then in Katsina, especially even in like Jibia town, even in Katsina, the state capital, we're starting to see attacks and stuff. So that's one kind of trend line that we've seen over the past year. Um, you know, the the Abuja Kaduna line uh, or, or train attack raises this kind of this big question about the 
the the bandits relationship with jihadists with Boko Haram ISWAP and then this this other group on Saru mm-hmm. um that's something I could you know talk a lot about um but mm-hmm. essentially to uh to, to be very brief uh on that now I would say that that is another um you know that this is an area where myself and a couple of my colleagues um have kind of written at length that we yeah. actually don't think that the bandit jihadist uh ties are as strong as a lot of people think mm. but there is some cooperation there and what i think is the abuja kaduna line and then the, the kuja attack likewise there was an element of bandits there is, is you know what i'm told mm. um so we are seeing bandits working with boko you know boko haram right and, and kind of scare quotes as the the general right. phrase for jihadists so yeah. we have yeah. seen some big operations in which they've cooperated we've also seen instances where they've clashed um and then you know another thing i guess a third point i would say is we we've seen a bit of uh the geographic dispersion of bandits over the past uh, by now roughly a year um mm-hmm. kind of starting in the dry season last year um, around, you know, the September time with also this kind of increase in military operations in Zamfara and, and neighboring states and these kind of um, these what they call non-kinetic containment measures, these efforts to, um, you know, restrict the sale of fuel and jerry cans, closing cattle markets, all that stuff, efforts mm-hmm. essentially imposed by these Northwestern um, uh, governments to uh, kind of strangle the bandits uh, logistically. We've seen the bandits move out and relocate to different areas and my own so actually more of my field work this year has kind of been in like the middle belt area so kind of benway nasarawa plateau mm. and then um i was recently in taraba for a week and i think okay. of those four states taraba has seen the greatest like you know essentially you know at this point a, a verified influx of mm. bandits from the northwest it, it doesn't seem to be just rumored there it seems like there are zomper and bandits who have really moved in relatively large numbers to taraba Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you have a bit of the geographic dispersion. That's a, a third theme. And then, yeah, I guess for the, the last point, you know, where we are in the current moment, you know, I mean, the the discourse is is significant, right? Um, yeah. The, I think, you know, everything is driven by politics. I mean, everything is always driven by politics. But this year, especially being an election year, um, you know, and the government is incredibly sensitive about any reporting on how bad this is um mm. and so i think that yeah we have seen maybe a bit more of um kind of the government trying to essentially you know scare uh threaten you know um uh, journalists and researchers out of kind of reporting on this issue and reporting and, and doing analysis of how complex this issue is yeah. i think you know social media is still a powerful tool so like if you know depending on who you're following on social media like there are still a lot of attacks happening Mm. um they're mm-hmm. just not maybe making the big headlines um and yeah and you know actually going out and, and interviewing bandits is you know it's always been risky and now it's of course even even riskier because you don't know how the government is going to to respond um but mm. i think that that is uh that's kind of representative of a you know a, a kind of conscious effort by the government to just try to downplay or have people ignore how bad the security situation has deteriorated in that part of the country uh, over yeah. the past you know, five or eight years. Um, mm. and that's that's really upsetting because um, you need to be able to talk about these things. Um, and it's it's a great injustice to those who are suffering when you're not. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's kind of a few of the key things, I guess, of where we stand. Mm, interesting. Um, 
I don't know. This this has this has got me thinking, especially I mean, um, this bit, James, that you you speak about, you know, the the warlord warlord lordism, you know, um, mm-hmm. aspect, you, you know, uh, which seems to me like some consolidation of 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 um, land or or spaces, you know, but. I don't know how to reconcile them with the movements that you also suggest that is, is, is happening or that's happened over time, you know, which means that, okay, for instance, that, you know, um, the bandits are, are beginning to move, you know, mm. more from the Northwest towards the North Central, you, you know, and, and then again, of course, the, the, the framing of, of the narrative, you know, as, as, um, Fulani heads, man. You know, so it's mm-hmm. it's, it's it's either it's. I mean, I think that's what's more more popular. But that's what more popularly used as opposed to even bandits. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, what that means for you know, um, even for 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 the warlords. I mean, what's what of what significance is it? You know, I mean, is this them conquering space, you know, or is, is this some kind of expansionism, you know, in that sense? Yeah. yeah, that's that's a great question. And it's, I mean, it's a good example of how, you know, this, uh, right, this issue of banditry in the Northwest and like the, the contours of, of banditry are themselves kind of hard to define, right? Like, because a ba- bandit is a very vague term. And so is a kidnapper in Plateau State a bandit? Is a kidnapper in Benin State, you know, or Edo State a bandit, right? Like it's mm. um mm-hmm. it's kind of there's there's a whole question of semantics here. Um, you know, one of the most some of the most notorious bandits, right? If you look back to the 1980s, there was uh Anini in in, in Benin, mm. um, then in like the 2010s, Ghana in, in Benue. So neither of these guys were Fulani, uh, mm-hmm. neither of them were Muslim. So there's, you know, there there are at a point it becomes difficult to define okay what is the banditry crisis per se mm-hmm. um what i would say is that like yeah you know the bandits they're uh um you know i i recently kind of wrote a, a manuscript for a, a upcoming cbd volume kind of looking at this that the the bandits are not they don't even fully kind of fit the traditional understanding of uh of warlordism um, whether we're looking at warlords in, you know, Somalia, Congo, uh, Liberia in the 1990s, we're looking at Afghanistan, Chechnya. Um, and th- there are a few reasons for that. And we can, you know, we can talk about those later. But mm-hmm. um, one one of them is kind of the fact that the bandits, they can be quite mobile. Um, what I would say is that, you know, for me, like, it's, you know, there's, uh, it's, it's not, I don't have like a perfect kind of distinction, but there are kind of some useful her- heuristics and essentially like mm-hmm. some of the bigger, more powerful bandits in the Northwest really do kind of stay in more or less one area and like mm-hmm. really kind of operating in more or less one local government. There are also bandits and, and a lot of these guys are older bandits, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't mean they're like, you know, in their sixties or seventies, but even just guys in their thirties who have been like in the game for a decade or so. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, increasingly, this is actually another trend you're seeing, that some of the younger bandits tend to be a bit more mobile. Some of these guys, you know, have, uh, you know, they don't really have one fixed abode. They kind of move around a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would also say, like, this issue, like, in Taraba, like, I have no idea how many bandits are in Taraba, right? It's impossible to estimate. What we know is that, like, they, you know, they have come in some degree of force. There are gangs of, like, dozens, probably over 100 fighters, yeah, just, you know, hearing people describe some of the attacks. 
but that would still like even if we're to say and this this number is completely speculative but like even if we're mm-hmm. to say okay 1000 or 2000 bandits like, like you know relocated to Taraba that still leaves a lot of them in you know mm-hmm. Niger Zamfara Sokoto Katsina Kaduna mm-hmm. so it's you know the the bandits can kind of go through periods where some of them disperse and then they maybe come back to the mothership so to speak you know they come back to the to to the epicenter to the core and then they can move out again so it's a very fluid conflict, right? It's mm-hmm. it's hard to kind of ever pin it down. Um, you know, I have people who have often asked, like, oh, you know, do you can you create can you like could we do a project where we map the bandits? And and I have colleagues who are interested in this. And you know, what I always say is like, yes, but like, you, you would need someone to do that, multiple people to do that full time because mm. you know, literally just the movements yeah. of where these gangs have their camps, it it switches so often. Um, what I would also say is that. You know, and this is, I, I think, back to my my first point about uh, distinctions. It becomes like there's kind of a there's a nationwide problem of mm-hmm. a rise in violent crime and kidnapping for ransom, right? And that is not exclusively a northern problem. It was, you know, in the 1990s and most of the 2000s, it was much more acute in the south. If you think about, you know, how groups like the Bakasi Boys and stuff, you know, came about, right? It was. Yeah. This, you know this vigilantism this self-help to kind of um you know uh uh kind of uh, fight these these kidnapping groups um but so like you know one of the questions i have when i'm going through like uh places like plateau or benue or whatever is like okay so this term bandit can be thrown around and then people also talk about fulani herdsmen and then people also talk about kidnappers and how much do they kind of you know intersect and this this is something i you know i I should be writing about now um, and, and hopefully we'll be, you know, um, kind of mm-hmm. uh, uh, getting some work out on this before too long. But like, I think that what you're what you're seeing, like to take Plateau as one example, you have this long running, you know, these long running issues between farmers and herders in different parts of the state. Um, you know, even the, the dynamics can change a lot from one local government to another. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Like uh, uh, Wase is very different from, you know, Basa, uh, yeah. for example. But then you also have like a rise in kidnapping. And what I what I found, you know, I was asking a lot about like, okay, who are these kidnappers? And like that seems to kind of be banditry at a lower scale that mm-hmm. is primarily driven by locals. Like most people said, okay, yeah, maybe there are one or two guys from the Northwest involved, but like we think these are mostly local guys who are just getting into kidnapping. Yeah. And so I would almost, again, this is like a very imperfect distinction. Uh, and I need to think, you know, I kind of need to think more about like how I would actually kind of separate the two intellectually or, or kind of um, uh, typologically, if you will. But like you can have like what you have in places like Zampara, Sokoto, Katsina is like it's banditry on steroids, right? It's banditry mm-hmm. warlordism. It's like full on armies of bandits, you know, controlling large swaths of territory with kingpins acting as de facto power brokers and political agents. Mm-hmm. And then you can have kind of the more, I mean, I don't mean to to downplay it or whatever, because any kidnapping, any crime is horrific, but like you have these kind of smaller, this growth of kind of like a cottage kidnapping for ransom industry in many parts of the country. And you could call these guys bandits, but they tend to be operating at like a much smaller, you know, much smaller scale than like the big guys in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the question and this question of the the Fulani herders, which is like obviously an incredibly contentious one. I mean, we saw a lot of this um, when when the BBC documentary came out, um, a lot of debate on social media 
And it wasn't, you know, it was an intra-North, intra-Muslim debate. It was not, yeah. the, you know, the Samuel Ortham style Fulani taking over, you know, trying to Islamize the country. It was like Hausa versus Fulani, people not even agreeing on whether these are the same people, different people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's it's an incredibly contentious issue and it, there are always local variations. Um, what I would say is like, yeah, I mean, in in, in parts of the country, you have, you know, herdsmen who are well-armed and are, you know, in, engaged in violence, right? They're fighting, they're fighting conflicts with local communities in some instances, like, again, even going back to Plateau State, like, as far as I could tell, there are, like, some areas where, you know, the Fulani are taking up arms and self-defense as part of an intercommunal conflict, and mm-hmm. it's more about we need to defend ourselves from vigilantes. And then there are other parts of the state where I think there's a much stronger case to be made that it's it's land grabbing, right? That the Fulani, that the the herdsmen, they want, you know, they want this land. And so they're trying to kick out the indigents. Mm-hmm. So it becomes very hard to kind of talk about generally like, okay, who are the bandits and what's their relationship with the Fulani herders? Yeah. Um, I think one of the questions I, you know, one of the things that I, don't, I still don't have a completely clear picture of, but like I did, you know, I did pick up um kind of some data points that suggest that in some of these places like in taraba for example you would have like these bandits from the northwest who have relocated and they've largely relocated to like the northern parts of the state the northern and western parts of the state Mm -hmm. and then you have this kind of brewing intercommunal crisis between fulani and and indigens i mean Mm -hmm. that's itself a complex you know issue yeah but um, yeah you would say that um, let's say the 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 quote-unquote local fulani population right exactly yeah um, so the local Fulanis versus the farmers uh, down in, in Takum local government is where that area is most acute now. Taraba has a long history right before. There was conflict yeah. in the Mambila Plateau, uh, around mm. Bukhari, you know, different areas. But right now, Takum is the hottest part. And, like, these seem like distinct issues, right? Whereas, like, the Takum issue is more of, like, a local, you mm-hmm. know, intercommunal, interethnic conflict. Whereas the big kidnappings and attacks in the northern parts of the state seem to be, like, criminal militants, aka, you know, i.e. bandits coming from the Northwest, setting up base in Taraba and kidnapping people for money. Right. But right. There, are, there are some data points that are suggesting that, like, some of these guys, and I even spoke to members of the Fulani community from Takum who said, yeah, some of these bandits are now recruiting our youths. Um, mm-hmm. And so one of the things about bandits is even as they're mm-hmm. criminals, they can be savvy kind of political actors. And so, you know, one of the, one of the, the risks or the challenges is that if there is an issue between herders and farmers in a given area, the, the bandits can kind of come in and say, okay, we're here to side with the herders and they will kind of align themselves mm-hmm. um, with the herders and through that, try to, you know, try to earn support, manpower, uh, recruits. Um, it doesn't always work though, right? It's mm-hmm. like, there's a lot of, I mean, again, it gets very complicated. Very often the, you know, herdsmen are, are, some of the first people to fall victims to bandits because the bandits right. are out looking for cattle and they, mm-hmm. st- you know, who has the most cattle. Mm. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it, it always becomes tough to talk about a, a, on kind of a national level because there's so much local variation, but it's also like, you know, you can't avoid talking about it on a national level, right? It's, it's one of the biggest, most contentious, um, you know, uh, issues, uh, in, yeah. in kind of Nigerian politics and society today. So we have to find a way to, to talk about these issues with nuance. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's tough. We certainly do have to find a right. way. And, um, no, I mean, I, I definitely appreciate your pointing to the fact that, you know, a lot of these issues are kind of 
seem to be woven into the structure of Nigerian life, irrespective of region, more profoundly. Um, you know, and maybe we're seeing local manifestations in the Northwest um, and now in parts of the North Central. But for instance, kidnapping is a problem everywhere. And in fact, you know, the most notorious kidnapper still probably is not a bandit or herdsman, right? It's probably that guy, Evans. You know, mm. <laughs> some people even say he's the richest kidnapper, but, I, you know, I guess yeah. Evans is a Lagos-based or used to be a Lagos-based right. person. I don't know I, if he's I still... I thought you were going to say Abba Kiari. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the DSS. Yeah, exactly. that's, uh, <laughs> that's what the bandits told me. They said, the DSS, they're nothing but kidnappers. You know, yeah. They're giving all these examples. They'll, they'll extort this Fulani man, that Fulani man. Right. Um, yeah. Um, but certainly taking people against their will and forcing them to pay is not, unfortunately, yeah. not um, specific mm. to any region. Um, right. We'll come back more to these, around to these <laughs> questions around, around narrative. <laughs> conversation so far has been an awareness of the kind of dynamic nature of this conflict. There's a lot of movement. Um, there's a lot of shifting uh, components around sort of age groups, like you mentioned earlier, um, and around particular geographies. I think one approach that might help sort of distill the trajectory of it a little bit is if we think a little about its history. Um, and of course, there's a much larger history one can tell about marauding groups, Fulani or otherwise, in the Sahel. That probably stretches back to the medieval period, you know, <laughs> foundation right. of the Malian Empire and Songhai. You know, there was a lot about, um, you know, trying to um, bring kind of self-governing herding groups under kind of centralized state control. Uh, and even the colonial period, you know, we, you and I have sat through conversations where people say that um, one of Lugard's driving motivations for trying to bring Northern Nigeria under the British colonial uh, flag was, you know, on the one hand to end slavery uh, and the other yeah. hand to end banditry. So, banditry, yeah. yeah, there might be a much longer history one can tell, but I mean, for you, if we want to kind of briefly, and this this I know won't be a fair or easy question, but if you want to kind of briefly historicize the contemporary manifestation of banditry or warlordism, you know, in this part of the world, what, how would you tell the origin story? And like, what would be the major, you know, two or three major turning points, you know, to your mind? Oh, yeah. That's uh that's quite <laughs> no, a task, but I'll, no, I'll, I'll try. No, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um you know, a lot of so I guess what I would say kind of the the broader kind of uh trajectory of this conflict, if you will, or kind of how it's grown, is that like looking in the northwest is that there have been kind of two parallel processes um that have, have proceeded in tandem and kind of intersected. And so on the one hand, you have um kind of heightens uh intercommunal conflict between farmers and herders um and that conflict by by the late 2000s early 2010s it, it's taken on a very ethnic dimension 
in the Northwest, where houses are seen as farmers, Fulani are seen as herders, even though, of course, you know, many Fulani are, in fact, city-dwelling or farmers, uh, you know, many Hausa and, of course, you know, multitudinous other ethnic groups herd cattle. So it's it's not quite as simple, but, um, you know, so you have this kind of ethnic conflict growing between farmers and herders. Um, and as a result, you have both sides kind of, you have both Hausa and Fulani in the Northwest arming themselves and, and becoming more militarized. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have the formation of these kind of, these Fulani militias that are largely for kind of, you know, self-defense or, or, or fighting against, uh, you know, the enemies of the Fulani. Mm -hmm. And then in tandem, you also have just kind of like criminal groups, criminal gangs, right? Cattle rustlers is how uh, it, it all started, yeah. um, who are kind of, and what happens is that as the ethnic conflict is growing in the 2000s and 2010s, the both the the number of kind of Fulani militias and self-help groups or whatever is growing because you have in tandem these Hausa groups, the Yensakai and others that are growing. So you have this kind of ethnic uh, conflict and, and kind of armaments along ethnic lines happening. You also have then the criminals are kind of taking advantage of that and sensing an opportunity. And so, you know, there have always been cattle rustlers, uh, you know, within the Fulani community and within other communities. And so they sense, um, particularly in the Northwest, those, you know, Fulani cattle rustlers kind of sense an opportunity to uh, recruit or in some instances forcibly conscript young mm. men from within the wider Fulani community with this sense of like, hey, there's an ethnic war brewing, you know, uh, we're not gangsters, right? We're not, we're not mere cattle rustlers. We're, we're fighting for the Fulani, you know, and, and so join us. And, right. you know, this is how you'll get, um, I think I, I listed in one article is like money, wives, revenge, and meaning, right? Like that's what they mm. sell essentially to young men, mm. right? This is, this is how you're gonna, this is how you're gonna achieve something with your life. Mm. Um, and then kind of over the course of the 2010s, what happens is that these two, these two sets of groups, again, this being a very imperfect kind of, uh, you know, uh, typology or whatever, yeah. these two sets of groups really kind of merge, right? Because the, those Fulani who took up arms, you know, essentially out of self-defense without any kind of intention to become cattle rustlers. Well, you know, when you, when you kind of are forced out of the realm of like the licit economy, right? When you literally can't go to the market to sell your cattle, because yeah. you're, you know, there's a high risk you will just get murdered for being a Fulani man. Mm -hmm. You're you're forced into the bush, and so you take up guns because you know you take up arms because you need to defend yourselves from the house of vigilantes and from other and from cattle rustlers, you know, to protect mm -hmm. your own herd. And so then it's yeah. a very easy kind of logical next step to go from I'm living in the bush with my herd, you know, protecting myself to okay, well, I have these guns, you know. Maybe I should, uh, you know, and and the Hausa, right? They're they're terrorizing my people, so maybe I should terrorize them and steal their livestock. And mm -hmm. then, okay, yeah, you know, maybe I can, if if I don't steal this guy's cattle, he might steal my own, right? Um, I mean, sometimes it, it can be simple calculations like that. Yeah. So the 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 Fulani militias kind of drift into criminality to an extent, and then also those who have kind of always been, you know, cattle rustlers or criminals of a sort. Um, kind of present themselves more as like, okay, you know, this is where the warlordism comes in. They present themselves as like, we are freedom fighters, right? I'm mm. fighting on behalf of the Fulani community. So mm. you have kind of this, this mix of, you know, I mean, this is one of the things that respondents say in the Northwest, you know, including Fulani and, and bandits and former bandits, they'll say, yeah, you know, some of the bandits, they took up arms out of, out of grievances, you know, or, or out of the need for defense. Others took up arms because they were just criminals and wanted a, an easy way to make a quick buck. But after a certain point, 
everyone's just doing the same thing, right? Everyone's mm -hmm. playing the same game. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, I, I think that doesn't probably maybe quite answer your question. I, I think mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, you can look at a couple different kind of historical junctures that are significant. Um, sure. You know, I think going back, like, you know, 1999 um, is a pretty significant date in Nigerian history. And yeah. this is not to say that democracy caused, you know, these problems, right, that we'd be better off under military rule, although that is what some of the bandits say. Mm. Shehu Rekeb is always saying, oh, things were simpler under Abacha. Yeah. Um, for him, but it's maybe. For him, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, not for environmental activists. Yes, or, you know, yeah, not for Ken, or... Ken Saruiwa, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I think that the way in which, right, I mean, just like the way in which um, the transition, and, and in many ways it's been an incomplete transition um, from military rule to democratic uh, rule happened, mm -hmm. you know, there was a lot of kind of money and power and patronage kind of divested to, um, you know, to, to different local officials, to civilians, um, former military officials, even getting kind of essentially bought off by being given like, you know, huge slots of land and in mm. different places. And so, yeah, what, OAG, you know, who's not here today might have called those people the resurgent bourgeoisie or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's not a bad phrase. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you, you might convince me yet. Um, but the, uh, yeah, you know, it was really interesting kind of, you know, pretty much I'd say the vast majority of people you talk to in the Northwest about this will kind of say, yeah, things started getting bad around the 2000s. Um, that's when tensions started to grow. And a lot of it was, you know, these kind of newly empowered officials or politicians like mismanaging land use, essentially selling mm -hmm. off pieces of lands, uh, either, you know, for money or in return for political patronage or distributing political patronage in ways that created resentment. Um, and then also, you know, elections becoming a, an incredibly cutthroat affair, right? I mean, there's been so mm -hmm. much poli-sci literature on, you know, Nigerian elections. Um, and it's like, you know, I mean, the, the Okada guy you interview will tell you elections, it's do or die, right? Everyone uses that phrase, do or die affair. Mm -hmm. And so in the Northwest, you know, that was also, I think, part of it, that you have these incredibly high stakes competitive elections where there's money being thrown around, there's, um, you know, people being mobilized or there's political thugs or whatever. And I think sometimes the connection, right, this idea that the politicians sponsor the bandits, I think sometimes that theory is overstated. The, mm -hmm. You know, banditry did not emerge as, it's, it's not a monocausal phenomenon, right? It did not emerge as a result of one single thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there, there, there was, I think, that, that element of kind of, people mobilizing around election times, bikes being distributed, you know, young men being promised more than they were actually given uh, yeah. you know, in return for, for, for causing, causing problems. Like that was an element. So I think that, you know, the, the incomplete and imperfect transition from military to civilian rule is one factor kind of leading to this, um, you know, mm -hmm. other historical junctures. I mean, if you look at the 2010s and I, I think, you know, the, the groundwork, right? The conditions were already there kind of by 2010, 2011 for this conflict to kind of, to, to, to really, you know, spiral out, but there are individual, um, uh, how do I say individual, um, kind of, uh, incidents that, that serve as catalysts. So the, yeah. the murder of this prominent Fulani man in, in Dansadao Emirates in Zamfara in 2012, Al-Hajiche, that was a big moment that kind of, um, 
catalyze some of the the really intense uh, kind of animosity mm-hmm. um, along ethnic lines. And kind of that was a moment where you saw more Fulani taking up arms and then more bandits kind of presenting themselves post facto as, as kind of Fulani militants. Mm. Um, you know, in 2014, there was a big massacre uh, by bandits of the Ansakai and also in Zampara. Um, you know, something like, you know, more than 200 of them were killed. I mean, the, mm. the numbers aren't, aren't clear, but it was, it was a real bloodbath. Um, that also kind of really hardened these divisions and, um, led to kind of, again, additional mobilization and, and tit for tat violence. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I think that the, I, you know, I would say that the, the Conqueror abduction in, in December, 2020 was also quite significant insofar yeah. as it served as kind of proof of concept, if you will, mm. um, for the bandits, <laughs> um, yeah, in, in, in a perverse way, but it's, I mean, this is something my, my colleague, uh, Abdulaziz, Abdulaziz of Daily Trust, um, you know, we, we worked on this, this study earlier with, with Dr. Murtala Rafai of CBD, um, mm. but, uh, that, that was looking at the bandit Boko Haram, you know, bandit jihadist relations. And, and one of the really interesting things, and this was largely, you know, Abdulaziz's work because he, he had actually interviewed the bandit, uh, you know, prior to this study, he had interviewed Awal Daldawa, who's the, the, the big bandit in Katsina back in 2020. Who, who did the conquer abduction and and it really seemed like Daudawa had kind of just had like no bandit had really thought to do a mass kidnapping of school children because that was something that Boko Haram did and the yeah. bandits didn't know if they would get a ransom because like if you just call up the government and say hey we're a bunch of bandits and we've kidnapped 100 school children is the government just going to laugh you off and say oh, these you know these are just Fulani herders they're nobody Mm-hmm. Um, but what Daudawa did was he essentially let Boko Haram claim credit for the attack. And so that generated, you know, a lot of big international headlines and it, you know, it led to a ransom, right? A mm-hmm. very good ransom for Daudawa. And then what you see after, after Kankara is just like almost immediately these other mass kidnappings happen. Um, those, the, you know, those, those kidnappings targeting school children have decreased, mm-hmm. um, for, for reasons that I think aren't entirely you know, I, I, again, I don't think it's it's one single reason, though. Part of it is just that there are so many children out of school now in the north. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, this is something that the bandits have even complained about. They, you know, there are audio mm. recordings where Dogogide or someone will say, "Yes, ah, you know, I have to, I have to travel out of state to hit a school because all the ones in my own area are closed down." Mm. Um, but we're still kind of seeing. I mean, just a few days ago, I think it was forty-four worshippers. It, it was last Friday. Uh, forty-four worshippers. Uh, um, you know, abducted from uh, Friday Mosque in Bukuyum, local government in Zampara. And now the report mm-hmm. is that they're being used as forced labor on the bandits' farms. So that kind of, mm. that shift towards mass kidnapping, I think that's a that's another kind of, um, uh, another big juncture. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, I mean, this might be getting ahead of the conversation, but I think one of the things that worries me about the northwest and I, I say this having recently you know spent some time in the in the niger delta region for a separate project um you know if, if you look at the delta like there's always a degree of militancy down there and criminal yeah. activity or at least there has been since the 90s but what particular activity that is kind of ebbs and flows over time in in large you know in large part due to kind of economic factors uh, as well as political ones Mm-hmm. So like oil bunkering is really big now and all these militants and pirates are getting into oil bunkering in part because it's a safer way to make money than like high seas piracy or whatever. Yeah. Or so, kidnapping down there. Or, or kidnapping. Yeah. Um, and, and there was a, a very good, uh, 
a quote from someone I was interviewing down and it was by Elsa. And I was talking about bandits. He was talking about pirates. He's like, Oh, what's the different, you know, it's like a bandit is a pirate on land and a pirate is a bandit at sea. And I'm like, Ooh, mm. if I ever write a book, I'm going to use that. Thank you. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I got his permission. Um, but, nice. uh, so, um, yeah. So, you know, I think that I, I worry that there can kind of be a, we can see a similar trajectory in the Northwest, which like, mm. right. All things considered, like whenever violence reduces that is, you know, that is in and of itself good. And like, it is good that the Delta True. is less violent today than it was say in 2005, but it's still a very violent place. And there's a lot of, you know, criminal activity and, you know, Nigeria is losing a ton of uh, potential oil revenue and stuff. So like my fear is that we might, you know, that a similar dynamic will happen in the Northwest where, you know, the yeah. bandits, they don't need to be wedded to mass kidnapping, right? They might find some other activity or some other, uh, you know, some, some other way of kind of making money and causing problems and, and, you know, inflating their kind of violent, um, you know, they're mm. inflating their stature. Um, and so it, 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 you know, when it comes to looking at solutions or whatever, it's one of the challenges, which is just that like, yeah. once a conflict like this has taken on so much momentum, taken on a life of its own, developed such a robust kind of war economy, essentially with so many different parties involved, like the, 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 the kind of specifics of that war economy, if you will, can change. Yeah. But the war economy still kind of exists, right? And mm -hmm. again, this is it's the political economy of warlordism, right? You're still going to have guys that have their guns. And even when they take amnesties, they're going to keep some guys in the bush with guns. This is what they do in the Delta so that mm -hmm. when things aren't favorable, they have leverage. And so it's, you know, when looking at kind of the historical trajectory of the bandits, and again, I realize I've, I've kind of gone further than your original question, but mm. I think it's, um, you know, we, it evolved from an issue of primarily cattle wrestling yeah. to then being one of mass kidnapping um, and, you know, and kidnapping for ransom and, and you know, um, and mm -hmm. where it's heading next, hard to say, but, you know, they're, they're smart and they adapt and that's, that's frightening, concerning. Quite so. I will definitely come back to the, the question of um, so solutions and, uh, you know, possible future trajectory. And it sounds like Emeka has possibly got a question on history as well. But, I mean, just staying within the kind of history realm um, for another moment, I wondered how much of a factor you think uh, dynamics in the wider Sahel region, you know, the sort of international aspect have been, or, you know, how much of a contribution they have played in propelling this phenomenon within Nigerian borders. So I'm thinking in particular of the Mali conflicts, you know, in 2012, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, starting around 2012, I guess. Um, and even uh, dynamics for their field in Libya, for instance. Um, yeah. And I bring this up, I mean, not just because of the speculative questions around the, the sources of weaponry and such, but because of more proximate um, kinds of explanations that have arisen, you know, including where we hear that in the BBC interview, for instance, when one of the repentant bandits was being um, interviewed, he mentioned that he had to go abroad to get weapons. So he sort of went somewhere to get weapons, you know, and there's, there's been amongst the older bandits, um, some statements around people having returned from abroad um, and there's also this thing that, you know, um, this kind of 
framing that you hear from some government officials, even the president himself, when he was interviewed uh, at one point saying that, no, these people are not Nigerians. I mean, I think from what we hear, from what we've discussed previously, that's clearly um, at best an overstatement and at worst mm -hmm. nonsense. Um, but yeah, I mean, where, where does the international dimension fit into this historical picture you've, you've painted? Is it, is there, was there an in, international dimension to the kind of maybe ethno-nationalist sentiment that seemed to be brewing um, in the face of mm -hmm. attacks from other, you know, ethnic communities, Hausa, you know, and Yan Sakai being one example. Was there an international dimension to, or rather the more economic aspects of the, the conflict that you've described in terms of cattle rustling? And, you know, is there some point where these two things, these two, um, these two streams, um, kind of merged within the wider Sahel, um, more generally. Um, so yeah, I just wonder, I'm, I'm kind of musing aloud, but I just wonder how you mm -hmm. bring the international aspect into the historical trajectory you've, you've spelled out. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you, you touched on a lot of it. Um, there definitely is like, you know, starting with the collapse of Libya and then the aftershocks, um, that's had a huge mm. impact on, you know, the proliferation mm. of weapons. It's very much mm -hmm. the case that early on, especially, you know, some of those bandits, uh, you know, people like Sheikh Rekab, um, who, who had kind of, who had spent time, uh, in other Sahelian countries and had existing contacts there that like they kind of served as gun runners and helped, you know, helped kind of bring in a lot of the weapons into, into the Northwest. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it helps to kind of think about, I mean, you know, if, if you ever have the chance to go to a border crossing in Northern Nigeria, um, it's, it's really quite an experience. I mean, I went to one up in, in the Northwest, up in the Katsina, mm. um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's a border crossing in name only, right? Like it's a border yeah. in name only essentially. And, you know, and that's, I mean, that's reflective of the fact, right? The, the artificial boundaries of colonialism and stuff, like there are communities that live on these areas that, you know, they, like most of the activity is, is perfectly, uh, normal right um it's it's people crossing to you know to go to the market to see family to uh you know even to go to school every day um so it's 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 you know it would be very difficult to kind of like harden nigeria's borders without seriously kind of uh impacting you know a lot of the kind of traditional livelihoods and stuff but yeah. it's also very much the case that like you know people the, the bad guys <laughs> right can also just smuggle you know smuggle in weapons and and personnel in very large numbers quite easily um mm. you know nigeria's northern border is really big it's very sparsely patrolled um so it's you know when you kind of go there and you see that it, it helps you appreciate i think just like you know just how easy it would be in, in fact to kind of get uh you know to to kind of bring in weapons and manpower and stuff from from other countries yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're correct that I think this idea, you know, the, the foreign Fulani element has definitely been overstated. Um, right. Yeah. Part of the, part of the issue is that, um, you know, those Fulani who are nomadic or semi-nomadic, uh, a number of them have spent, uh, like a lot of time in neighboring countries. So some of them might use a, a few French phrases even because they've gone to Cameroon or Niger, you mm. know, repeatedly with their herds or whatever. And so, you know, yeah. people will They're think that if they enter <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, talk about their revolutionary potential. Yeah, um, no, they're very much they're very much lumpen proletariat. They they fight each other more than they fight the uh, anyone mm. else. So, um, or maybe they might be kulaks. But, you know, if you want to go yeah. with uh, with uh, yeah. 
classic uh, right. so, so, Soviet inspired Marxism. But anyway, we exactly can come, we can, yeah, we can come back to well, that. Well, most of them have more than two heads of cattle, so I think right? that qualifies. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so it could be. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so, so the, the foreign, I mean, like, the numbers are impossible, right? I, this is this is the mm-hmm. big caveat here. We don't even know how many bandits there are. Again, it depends on how you classify a bandit, um, and so we don't know the percentage of, of foreign, you know, bandits among them. I mean, who knows? Maybe someone in government has has gone to the trouble of compiling all these estimates and working on it. I'm, I, I'd be skeptical of how precise those estimates even are, mm-hmm. but I certainly have no kind of clear sense of, of what percentage it would be i just think it's the minority and i think it's you know a, a pretty small minority probably mm-hmm. um i think what we do hear about i think especially you know the right like the conflict goes through waves it goes through cycles so at points where there's been heightened kind of where the ethnic dimension of the conflict has been heightened um and i guess you know i mean i i think i've, I've touched on this a bit maybe but right like what's one of the things that's quite I guess unique and dynamic about the violence in the Northwest is that like, because it's kind of, you know, it's, it's evolved into this form of kind of warlordism and criminal insurgency in which the bandits on a day-to-day basis may primarily be like their MO is primarily driven by kind of, I would say almost like inter-gang considerations, right? Mm -hmm. Their, their MO is to maximize their power and wealth um, you know, relative. And I think really power more than even wealth, right? These Mm -hmm. guys, they're not like, you know, buying penthouses at the transport or the Lagos Oriental, like they're, they're in the mm-hmm. bush. Um, when they get money, it's, it's like the, the Jangebe abductors told Yusuf in that document, in the BBC documentary, right? When they get money, we buy guns. Yeah. So a lot of it is about, you know, kind of this inter-gang warfare logic of, you know, kind of being more, you know, trying to always be one step ahead of your adversaries and, and kind of to gain influence and prestige within the, the kind of the, the militant uh, uh, milieu. Um, but then, you know, so like on a day-to-day basis, like these guys aren't primarily serving, like the, the the ethnic dimension is not what's at the forefront of their mind. They're not primarily serving or fighting as, you know, for a Fulani cause. Yeah. But then when, you know, if there's something that sparks kind of wider ethnic issues, right? If there's, um, mm. I mean, you know, going back, because I was in the Northwest doing field work last year around September, October, um, when these military offensives uh, kind of kicked off, and the containment measures one of the kind of side effects or, or one of the the some of the collateral if you will was that you had more of these yan sakai these these house of vigilantes uh mobilizing or remobilizing and so you had kind of an attendant uptick in in violence against fulani um like innocent you know non non-bandit just ordinary herders or whatever and so when you have incidents like that where a bunch of fulani are just killed because of their ethnicity you know at some marketplace in sokoto or whatever you know, a bandit, I mean, in this case, you know, uh, Turji and Halilu were, were kind of two of the examples, mm-hmm. um, you know, they come out and they say, oh, wait, like, we're, you know, we're Fulani freedom fighters, so now we're going to kill a bunch of Hausa in retaliation. So, mm-hmm. what, you know, this is all to say that kind of the ethnic dimension can ebb and flow, and sure. how much of the bandits, you know, serving as kind of in this capacity of, oh, we're, we're here to defend Fulani, like, how much of it is sincere versus kind of cynical posturing? Mm, right? Strategic. The, strategic, exactly. These guys are warlords. They know that they can't just claim to be criminals. They have to claim to be fighting for a higher cause. So, you know, it's it's not always entirely clear. It's probably some combination of the two, mm-hmm. um, of, of genuine kind of, uh, you know, sense of ethnic solidarity and then and also kind of strategic posturing. 
Um, but anyway, so that's all to say, kind of to get back to the question of, of foreign fighters, um, you know, what, what I have heard in, in my research is that in periods like, you know, in the early 2010s, after the killing of Al-Haji Shay, mm-hmm. um, maybe even to some extent kind of last year, there you would have, um, you know, the, the, the local Fulani in the Northwest and Zampara or Sokoto, you know, would call on uh, kind of kin or, you know, distant connections in neighboring countries mm. and, you know, would call on them to come in to to kind of join this, uh, you know, to join the conflict on on the side of the local Fulani. Mm. Um, so there there was some of that. And I think, you know, what motivates some of these, uh, you know, Fulani coming in from places like Niger, um, you know, and it's mostly Niger, is okay. what I heard about, you know, maybe further afield. But again, the numbers are, I, you know, I, there are no numbers uh, yeah. that I could give at least. Um, but, you know, how much of that, are they motivated by genuine kind of a sentiment of ethnic solidarity? Yeah, sure, quite possibly, quite probably. But also, you know, is there a bit of self-interest here? Um, you know, Nigeria, places like, you know, Zampara, is, various parts of Zampara has some kind of very, very lush, um, you know, very good pasture, whereas mm-hmm. uh, we talk about the Sahel with uh, kind of, desertification being uh, exacerbated by climate change and stuff so you know you have to wonder how much when when foreign militants uh, have have come into the northwest um you know is it really is it primarily out of ethnic solidarity or is it more kind of a combination of ethnic solidarity and maybe you know, kind of material self-interest if you will mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for me it's the, the mention of i'm struck by the mention of you know in tracing, you know, the history, you know, especially that bit about the transition from military to to um, civilian rule and how, you know, the Nigerian state decided to reward some some of, you know, the high flying, because that's part of, you know, part of the recurring conversations in some quarters, you know, about how how to think about this, you know. Um, especially when you start thinking about uh, transhuman roots, um, grazing roots generally, and the, and their blockage. So, is, is, is I mean, I, I wonder, with James, is, is it something that you've come across in your research? You know, that, you know, in, in settling, uh, you, you know, thinking about it within patronage networks. You know, the allocation of land to you know top military shots you know has this come up in some of the conversations that you know these people have in terms of their grievances and and how it's escalated you know the farmer you know heather clash in in any if it's you know that it's been significant in any sense you know in the sense that you have these lands allocated without recourse to existing grazing routes or even those ones that you know have you know, um, have been mapped out over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's one of the big grievances that you hear from pastoralist communities, um, which is, and you know, and, and plenty of government officials also will admit that, yeah, there's been a problem of kind of unlicensed or, uh, you know, developments, uh, either the expansion of farmlands or even the development of like townships and, and you know, uh, housing mm. settlements and stuff on yeah. protected grazing routes, grazing reserves, um, you know, degradation of the forests and stuff, um, and also, you know, a degradation of, of, of water supplies. Um, you know, some of that is just kind of driven by, uh, I would say, kind of a general, you know, population growth, a bit of urbanization and stuff. Um, 
but a lot of it, like it does seem to be linked to kind of the, you know, the, the transition, uh, out of military rule. And I'm not, I'm not a specialist in kind of these, these issues of, of land management and land tenure. This is actually something I'm, I'm thinking about now. Um, I'm, uh, you know, being very much a masochist, I'm considering a PhD. And so this is one of the <laughs> kind of, this will be, and, and a history PhD in particular, I'd, I'd oh, be God. curious to kind of dig into this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. God help me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I, I'd like to learn more about this because I think mm -hmm. the, it was never kind of one of the major focuses of my research, but it's something that came up in a lot of interviews, especially with, you know, with older community leaders or traditional rulers or stuff, people who, you know, had, were, you know, good memories and stuff, um, you know, good as in, you know, had clear memories of the, of the era of military rule was that there did seem to be a lot of kind of like new actors emerging as kind of the military loosened its grip on, you know, mm. all aspects of politics, but also just literally on, on, you know, land and kind of moved out, uh, and, and, and took, you know, a smaller role in terms of kind of owning and managing land that, you know, more of it went to the politicians. There were all this, mm. um, you know, all of these new kind of positions and titles coming up, even the traditional, uh, titles were kind of, um, you know, they were, they were modified or, you know, some would even say maybe bastardized, right? Um, like a number of Fulani complained that uh, under mm. the, the governorship of the first Zampara governor, Sani Yarima, that he kind of, he politicized this institution of Sarkin Fulani and essentially was appointing his own kind of political, you know, his political allies to be the head of the Fulani community in X area. And mm. so, mm. you know, it's, it can't really be disentangled from uh, from corruption. These these land land use issues, and I think that's one you know one reason. I mean, actually, it, it, it comes to mind because I think actually Said was there. We were at a, a conference um, a few months back in Abuja, and you know the the topic of climate change come uh, came up, mm -hmm. and you know I'm very much like climate change is absolutely one of the big factors here. People people in the Northwest know this, right? Even if they don't know all the details of co2 levels and stuff they're aware that like you know that cl the climate is changing right that harvests are different than they used to be that water is disappearing and stuff mm. so there's there's absolutely like uh you know a strong element of you know these this crisis being exacerbated and, and to some extent driven by climate change but i you know i've i've kind of sometimes when i'm with you know government officials or whatever i get frustrated because they kind of there, there can also be a tendency to paint this as like, oh, this is solely a product of climate change. There was never any violence beforehand. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a way for the politicians and the elites to wash their hands of this. Because, you know, there are, right, like, um, yeah. we had, and there's a very, a very uh, smart professor from Kebby who I interviewed uh, last year as part of my field work. Um, and he was talking about, you know, this, um, he's like, Nigeria is not facing a Malthusian catastrophe. Right. Mm. We have enough land. We have enough natural resources to feed everyone. We should not mm -hmm. fall into this trap of thinking because of climate change and population growth, mm. we're just destined to have these conflicts. It's like so much of this comes down to poor and like in many instances, antiquated land management, but also mm -hmm. corrupt land management. Mm -hmm. And so like the one thing that everyone talks about in the Northwest when you ask about their grievances is the corruption and the mm. injustice, right? Mm. whether it's on how, you know, a, a dispute over land was, uh, was adjudicated, right? People will say, you know, this guy was very corrupt. So he, he sold this land that he didn't have the right to sell to his friends. And they, you know, built a, built a bunch of houses or whatever on this grazing route. And now we can't graze there or, uh, you know, corruption in terms of the criminal justice system, 
Um, you know, one uh, my colleague, Dr. Rufai, likes to talk about how, you know, in the Northwest, Fulani herders came to be seen by police and by vigilantes as walking ATMs yeah. because they were so easy to extort because they carry all of their wealth with them, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of having this, these large herds of cattle. So, you know, if someone would be arrested for, uh, you know, if, 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 a, if a young herder was arrested because some of his cattle trampled on some crops or whatever, you know, in the olden days, he would just have to pay, you know, I don't know, 2000 Naira or something in compensation. And mm-hmm. now, but, you know, the, the police would then say, okay, actually, let's charge them, you know, 200,000 or a million Naira and we'll split it, you know, with the, with the farmer or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, corruption in the leadership of, of you know, organizations like Mietiala, mm-hmm. um, which is one thing that I think was really became clear in the course of my research. I mean, not to paint with too broad a brush, I've, you know, met some very, uh, I think, kind of uh, committed and intelligent, you know, Mietiala officials who, who do seem to be, you know, pretty quite sincere yeah. um, in terms of ad- addressing issues uh, pertaining to pastoralist communities and whatnot. But there's also like, you hear a lot of grievances from herders about Mietiala. And yeah. so there's one of the, you know, to bring it back to this issue of discourses, right? One of the narratives, especially here in the South, but I mean, really kind of nationwide, right? One of the narratives among non-Fulani is that like the Mietiala along with Buhari or whatever are kind of orchestrating this land grab and mm. you know that that kind of the ordinary Fulani herders are pawns in the hands of Mietiala and in fact like a lot of you know or, a lot of ordinary herders have a lot have grievances against Mietiala because like many other institutions in Nigeria it's become very corrupted mm-hmm. and so you even have these issues of extortion where you know the local Makban representative will yeah. kind of say, oh, you know, I have any time a Fulani man is arrested, you know, I have to be there to represent him because he's my kin. But what he actually does is he shows up and he cuts a deal with the police or the judge or whatever and says, okay, mm. well, at least the guy, but we're going to take, I take five of his cattle, you take five, you know. Mm. So this issue of of corruption, I think is, you know, it's, so yes, it, it goes back to an issue of, of, you know, land use, land management, but you can't extricate the, the issue of corruption from that. Um, mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, there appears to be in that description a kind of class distinction between, um, you know, mm-hmm. to bring it back to some some of our favorite hobby horses on this podcast, um, right. you know, between the sort of smallholder herdsman and uh, this institutional supposed representative of Miatiella, who, you know, yeah. presumably is probably much more wealthy in cattle than the type of person mm-hmm. that's likely to get arrested for eating, you know, that is for, for his cattle, having eaten some stalks of corn and such. Um, right. So, I mean, these are some of the kinds of things we were hypothesizing about and playing with in an earlier episode uh, where we mm. talked about uh, proletarian herdsmen. But, that's very uh, Maoist of you. Yes, uh, uh, we've been accused of, of that before, believe it or not. Um <laughs> But, you know, trying to bring it around to a sort of conclusion, um, I mean, a few kind of threads have emerged when we've explored the question of, you know, how to characterize this phenomenon. Um, and I think one that really compels me is where you draw this distinction between, you know, you you try to maintain the distinction. I know, I know you problematize the kind of flippant characterizations of flippant kind of box ticking that goes into this. That's That's often prevalent in conflict studies, but it seems like you still find um, dis- some distinction between jihadism and banditry useful, mm-hmm. you know, and it also sounds like 
from your work that I've read before and hearing you talk now that you still want to insist that even though there's some cooperation now and then and, you know, um, that sort of thing, the the um, banditry phenomenon can't be totally subsumed under quote-unquote Boko Haram. And in fact, mm-hmm. if 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 some of that kind of subsumption is happening, it's maybe in the other direction where, you know, like you've you've said elsewhere that it is a kind of banditization of jihad rather than a jihadization of banditry. Um, you know, and I find I find some of that compelling. But I guess the when you talk about warlordism, you know, and, and here's where my question arises. I'm not and you know, I, I don't know how far we want to stretch that term outside of con you know, outside of context of actual war, like Somalia mm-hmm. and you know Liberia means the civil war and parts of the Congo and such. And of course, there's the kind of baggage that comes with it where, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's sort of, um, it's hard to fully shake off the uh, African exceptionalism that that, yeah, that, yeah. that that's sort of maybe implicit in those kinds of terminologies. And then I guess, you know, in this context here, I mean, it's possible that we're witnessing something unique, you know, that something that is related to Nigeria's peculiar political economy, the oil situation, land, um, our location in the Sahel. Um, and yeah, I mean, the fact is in a lot of cases, groups like the bandits, um, I mean, Boko Haram might be an exception here, but, um, they don't necessarily eschew Nigerian citizenship or say that they are trying to set up something different, even if in practice, of course, they do manage some territory. So I guess I want, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to push back a little or see how you might complicate or um, mm-hmm. think aloud about the term warlordism and its possible limitations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And I mean, there are many there are definitely limitations um and i've i've tried to kind of identify these in, in an upcoming um an upcoming study because like you say it's it's important not to just kind of go through the the box ticking or whatever um mm-hmm. i think that you know one of the you know one of the key kind of differences between what we're seeing in the northwest with the the most powerful bandits and kind of warlordism traditionally understood um and it's definitely true that like you know it, a lot of who we think of as warlords are you know, at least in the traditional conflict literature, like the case studies are mostly in Africa, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's also the Caucasus, Afghanistan, I would argue, you know, um, today in Latin America, some of the the narco kingpins have kind of reached a similar status. Mm-hmm. Also in like American history, I mean, if you read the histories of, you know, the settlements of, of, of the, the Western frontier and stuff, like mm-hmm. that's, uh, we we definitely had warlords as well. Well, and, um, even, her- and even herdsmen. Exactly. Uh, I mean, yeah. I get oh, cow- conflict. cowboys. I guess might ha- might be how you <laughs> call them. <laughs> the, there really are. I mean, I you know I, I did my I went to university in Texas. So I lived there for. I was actually born in Texas, but grew mm. up in northeastern uh, U.S. and then went back to Texas for university. And I always enjoyed hiking and driving through the countryside. And actually, like especially in the rainy season, I found like parts mm. of the Northwest actually look a good bit like you know the Texas mm. uh, plains. So. Um, but anyway, so setting that aside, you know, one, one of the big differences is that you talk about, right, like warlord is, warlords emerge in the context of war. And what I would argue is that one of the things that's kind of 
uh, where, where Nigeria, yeah, perhaps being unique, kind of flips this on its head, is that in the case of the bandits, like, they did not emerge so much in the context of a clear war in the sense of like a full-fledged civil war and the breakdown of the state, mm -hmm. right? Rather, they emerged and kind of and started to drive that process. Mm -hmm. And so like, if you look at it, right, like one of the key things about warlords and most other contexts is that they are, they're individuals who are already kind of well within the political patronage networks of the Ancien Regime. Mm -hmm. And then when that regime collapses, they benefit, they use their, their existing networks and, and positions to kind of, to essentially carve out little fiefdoms in a yeah. very, in a feudal or a neo-feudal fashion, right? So classic examples like Charles Taylor was in charge of customs for, you know, the Samuel mm -hmm. Doe regime before he then, you know, fell out with him. But so he accumulated a lot of wealth and connections, you know, within the Nigerian or the Liberian, sorry, state apparatus and security yeah. apparatus, um, right? A lot of the warlords in Somalia, a number of them, had been, you know, officials in the Siad Barre regime, uh, you know, and then when that collapsed, they they used those connections. Um, so, you know, that's that's kind of the the, the typical quintessential example. Will, uh, William Reno has done mm -hmm. a really good book on yeah warfare in contemporary Africa, where he kind of he identifies this. And you know, one of the things about the bandits and and the, the most powerful bandits today, who you might consider bandit warlords, um, is that you know they they were for, to a large extent kind of at least politically peripheral um mm -hmm. you know some of the bandits came from kind of wealthier uh wealthier families in terms of like within the kind of the fulani pastoralist community mm -hmm. others were were quite poor um but for the most part right like none of them were officials in the you know in, in the nigerian uh government like none of them were um kind of seriously like uh, politically influential figures um, and it was, in fact, it was the marginalization of, you know, or, or the kind of perceived marginalization politically and economically of the Fulani that kind of led to this conflict in the first place. So in that sense, yeah, it's, it is very interesting and, and, and perhaps unique. I mean, I don't, I haven't studied all these other cases in, in depth, but mm -hmm. it does seem like in Nigeria, it was almost kind of the reverse where you had these warlords emerging that were driving the breakdown of the state rather than the state breaking down and then leading mm -hmm. to the emergence of warlords, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, um, it does. And yeah. I mean, I guess part of what seems complicated about Nigeria is that it's not necessarily even clear that these dynamics are leading to the breakdown of the state per se. Yeah. I mean, you can almost see them as leading to the strengthening of some aspects of the state, like simply yeah. the military apparatus um mm -hmm. and institutions Definitely. around amnesties and you know for instance in the niger delta the presidential amnesty program and even local localized amnesties of the sort right we've seen in the in the northwest so i mean i i i hear you when you're saying that there's there's a way in which nigeria might flip the narrative um mm -hmm. and i yeah i'm sympathetic to that but then i wonder if it might require different kinds of conceptualizations if the narrative is is so flipped but um anyway i will yeah <laughs> I, I will I, 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 yeah. let me chip let me chip this in i mean just thinking about you know listening to james talk and just thinking about you know the conversation so far i mean it's 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 easy it's it's rather it's hard to shake off you 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 know that bit about the link of the breakdown or the, the end of the war in libya you know that link with you know the proliferation of, of bandits you know so if you i mean i mean the bandit thing if you go back 
not even as far back as 2000, but as far back as 2010 will predate, you know, the fall of, of Gaddafi and Libya, what that meant for arms, you know, um, coming into Nigeria through, because of the loot, because of, you know, the way that the borders are, are, are unguarded, you know. But I, I think that, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert in this area, but I, I, that if, if we're exploring, and this isn't the question anyways, but if, that if you were exploring, mm. um, that that might be a useful way to to try and map some of, you know, the, the ways that these things keep, you know, changing. Because for me, you know, just reading the article that Said, you know, James's article that Said shared with me, I think what struck me the most is, you know, the age of, of, of mm. this uh, this yeah. bandits, you know, I mean, yeah, and I'm and I'm thinking. So I'm basically older than even some of their generals, you know, who are in their thirties, yeah. you know. And so, what what kind of life, you know, have they yeah. lived, you know, yeah. and how that, you, yeah. you know, what, what kind of um, kit and team relationship do they have across, you know, the borders, you know, and what that meant. You know? So I, I think. In thinking about this, you know, we might have to go way back, but just, you mm. know, with, within the ambit of the conversations, you know, so far, I think that, you know, if 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 we're looking at it in the classic sense of what warlordism what, what is, you know, um, that it, it's not impossible that these links do exist and that, mm. you know, mm-hmm. um, if, if you think about it in, in a Pan-Africanist um, sense that, um uh, Nigeria isn't immune from, you know, what, what then happened in Libya and how the speed on effects of some of these things, and even in neighboring mm-hmm. West African, West African countries, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I also say that because of the cooperation that, you know, um, that has been observed, you know, with, with, you know, Boko Haram in the northeastern part of Nigeria. I mean, and I, and I put this question to cite some weeks ago, I think, when it came on my own radar that for a state like Jigawa, which is right there, sitting in, in the middle of, you know, all of the banditry happening in the Northwest, and, you know, most of, you know, a major chunk of the Boko Haram, you know, problem yeah. in the in the North is that you find that a state like Jigawa, maybe Gombe, are relatively peaceful. I don't know if that's... Right. Mm. Yeah, you know, you know, and, and and seem, you know, not to be touched by all those pockets, you know, violence, you know, in and around, yeah. you know. So it's 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 a hard thing to think about, really, you know. But you know, so I, like I said, it's not a question in any sense, but it's just you know something to chip chip in in the way that we think about it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I I would just I mean thank you for that uh, contribution. The the Jigawa Gombe stuff is really interesting, and you hear mm. different theories about. I've never been to either state, but you hear different theories about, you know, why they've avoided it. And, um, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I would add say to your earlier point, like, I don't, I don't think that, you know, Nigeria is facing like state collapse or whatever in the, sure. in the traditional sense. I think that, you know, I mean, there are already a lot of kind of basic functions of statehood that the Nigerian state does not perform. Mm-hmm. Um, but Nigeria, you know, Nigeria persists and much of Nigerian society to some extent, you know, 
does more than persist. It thrives. I mean, I'm, mm. I'm based in Lagos, which is just, you know, one of the most fascinating and dynamic cities. And like, I, I mean, this is obviously a topic for a whole nother podcast, but like, no. you know, I mean, I, I recently heard that there are like 2 million malnourished people in Lagos, which mm. shocked me. And, but, you know, mm. just kind of mm-hmm. showed my own ignorance because I see so a very inside of Lagos. Yeah, 2 million. That's what I, the number, according to the UN, like 2 million malnourished people in Lagos. Oh, and of course, like, okay. Yeah, malnourished. And, and it, it doesn't, you know, you think about it, you think, oh, yeah, that could easily be the case, right? You think yeah. of all the slums, all that stuff. But, um, so, you know, not, Nigeria is a land of contrasts yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and inequality. Um, mm. But so, you know, I, I don't think, you know, and, and this kind of actually gets back to an earlier point, I guess, Amika was making, like, about, you know, is this a rural or urban phenomenon? Mm-hmm. I think the bandits, right, what's happened is that, you know, like, think about, like, the, the Kuje prison break and, and the subsequent uh, attack on Zuma Rock by kind of a, 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 a medley, it seems, of different jihadists, you know, ISWAP, Boko Haram, and, and, and some bandits as well. But the, the, the state has allowed the periphery, the rural periphery, like, insecurity to fester in the rural mm-hmm. periphery. Mm-hmm. And it's now starting yep. to yep. impact the urban areas more. Right. I mean, the Abuja Kaduna line was like very much, I mean, that was, you know, it was right. We know now it was essentially, it was a hostage situation. They were trying to get a hostage exchange to, to a large extent, but I think they chose that line very intentionally, not just because it's a, it's a good target, um, but also like it's very symbolic, right? This is how the Northern elite travels. Um, Mm. You know, you see the, the attacks in Abuja, but like, you know, I don't think, Right. I don't think that whether it's the bandits or ISWAP or Boko Haram, I don't think that we're getting like Nigeria's facing like a Taliban style takeover. Right. Um, you know, so I think and th- this is one of the questions I have, which is that, like, I oscillate, you know, in part because I, I live here and I, you know, have friends and, you know, loved ones and stuff and, and, and yeah. in, in this country and, and people in different parts of the country. And I oscillate between being very scared um, about how things are going and like you know, thinking to myself, like, Jesus Christ, this is getting really bad, you know, yeah. like, how, you know, how, like, these people need to leave, like, you know, the people I care about, how do I help them, Japa, right? Like, stuff mm-hmm. like that. And then <laughs> thinking, okay, actually, but like, you know, Nigeria is going to get through this, right? And, but it's so, you know, there was a whole debate about a year ago, uh, different scholars arguing in like foreign affairs, I think, yeah. um, about, you know, is, is Nigeria a failed state? And again, maybe it's like, we have to think of, Nigeria is a bit exceptional where it can simultaneously be one of the most violent countries on earth mm. where, you know, the state fails in basic things like refining the petroleum that it produces or, you know, generating light for at least half of the day. Yeah. But like, there's also a tremendous amount of wealth and, you know, in, in many ways, economic growth and all this stuff. So like the two can, you know, coexist potentially. Um, mm. It's just, you know, but I guess you, you don't want to, you don't want to get complacent. I mean, that, I think that the problem, you know, a big part of why the country finds itself in the position it's in today is due to complacency, yeah. um, you know, and so, you know, complacency from, from those in charge. Um, so mm-hmm. I think it's, it's one of the things I struggle with kind of conceptualizing or articulating, you know, beyond the fact that just predicting the future is really tough, um, mm-hmm. not impossible. It's, it's like, how do we think about the possible trajectories for Nigeria, right? Like, mm. how do we how do we consider if things can get really bad or even worse in some areas, but maybe better in some ways, right? I mean, yeah, you know, it's like there used to be, you know, Abuja 
was rocked by some major terror attacks a decade Absolutely. ago. Absolutely, yeah. So like, well, you know, even as, like even as recently as 2014. I mean, yeah, that's almost a decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Exactly, exactly. But it's like it's a weird thing where like there was more violence in the in Abuja back then, but the roads outside Abuja were safer, mm. right? So it's mm-hmm. like things. The trend lines can they can mm. get worse in some areas and better in others. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's it's tough but um yeah i mean no fair enough and i mean some of these problems arise from just trying to conceptualize the state in its contemporary form and yeah you know when it can be said what 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 kinds of challenges it really cares about and what challenge what kinds of challenges it's it can allow to fester you know like yeah obviously parts of America governed by the Bloods and Crips, for instance, or, you know, Mexican Mexican drug cartels from the countryside. So, um, but, you know, yeah. So not to drag back up that debate about state failure, because people can go and read it. And I mean, it has, it's had its limitations, but um, yeah, yeah, just to say, I appreciate your, your kind of um, allowing a lot of room for complexity in in how you think about this stuff. Um, Yeah. I mean, to, Maybe bring us home. I mean, thank we've we've kept you here for basically almost a kidnap for ransom type situation. <laughs> so let's let's see if we can try My to wrap it up. Starting to worry. Yeah, <laughs> I bet. Um, but you know, maybe to 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 bring it home with some slightly more positive uh, kinds yeah. of reflections. Um, but probably hard to answer. I mean, I I wonder what you think in terms of possible pathways forward or solutions, right? Um, I mean, there have been various kinds of attempts to resolve the problem and various kinds of proposals put forward, including, you know, Elrify's uh, suggestion, the governor of Kaduna's suggestion that that the military or the the Air Force carpet bomb the forests, Um, you know, and of course you hear these kinds of suggestions also from people who live much further away from the conflict that, you know, if the government was serious, they would just kill everyone, you know, associated yeah. with or around these places. And I mean, obviously those, I think are probably on the more ludicrous as on the more ludicrous right. side of the spectrum, but, you know, in terms of also some of the, you know, let's say slightly more local or nuanced approaches around amnesties and, you know, particular kinds of non-kinetic, um, responses banning okadas and you know, motorcycles mm-hmm. you know and trying to control the the flow of weapons what what so far to you seems to have some potential um maybe you know within the existing menu of state responses and local responses and are there other things that you think we might need to consider trying um as we think about possible ways out of this conflict yeah no it it's, it's always the best question to end on. It's always the hardest one for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I it's 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 tough. I mean, so I think you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll start by saying on that on the the military component. Um, you know, so let me caveat by saying I think compared to probably a lot of foreign an- or a number of foreign analysts or researchers or journalists, like you know, I'm not like I I. I'm probably more sympathetic to the Nigerian military than some outside observers. I'm not mm. a pacifist. I think Nigeria needs a military. I think it needs a functioning military. Mm. Um, like sometimes you, you know, sometimes you have to fight, right? Yeah. That said, mm. like you cannot bomb your way or shoot your way out of the banditry problem. Um, in many ways, it's more complex than say the Boko Haram conflict. 
where that operates in kind of a more conventional insurgency, counterinsurgency, you know, you can kind of say, okay, the military can repeat the, you know, 2015 MNJTF style offensive. And this time the state yeah. puts in more resources to holding and building territory. Like you could see progress even last year, the military, you know, did make some gains in the Lake Chad basin, though yeah. I think unfortunately we're starting to see they weren't, uh, they weren't sufficient or sustained maybe, but, um, you know, I think that cannot kind of operate more like a traditional insurgency, counterinsurgency. I think the banditry situation, in, in part because it's so much more widespread and complex, and there are so many different actors involved, and the militants are not unified under one, you know, specific um, mm. kingpin. Right? This is one thing I, we, you know, I warned about with Abdulaziz and Dr. Rafai in our our study on jihadization or, or banditization of jihad. That like the you know the traditional kind of leadership decapitation tactics that like you know the u.s mm. and partners employed a lot you know the war on terror and have had kind of at best mixed results you know i mean sometimes they do you know we did actually degrade aqap and other groups yeah. to the point where they couldn't do as many international attacks or whatever but like that can kind of work to an extent with jihadist groups but if you look at like what happened in say mexico where they tried the same thing the mexican government with like u.s backing against you know like uh, against several dozen rival cartels and and criminal groups like mm. it just led to fracturing and more violence right so that's why i think the leadership decapitation approach in the northwest and we've already seen some signs of this like it can actually backfire so i mm. i don't think that there's like a pure military solution to this um looking at the at the non-kinetic stuff i mean amnesties are kind of like a oh i don't know it's it's a double-edged sword right yeah and i think i'm I'm of the view that like they're probably, you know, they're they're the least bad option if they if they're done properly, right? And the problem okay. in the Northwest is that they've never even been done kind of with the same degree of, you know, um the same degree of kind of coordination and oversight as, you know, the say the PAP in 2009 yeah. in the Delta. Yeah. And again, I was just in the Delta. I mean, I talked to a lot of disgruntled ex-militants who say you know the amnesty is bullshit we don't get paid you know all this stuff there there yeah. are lots of problems with the amnesty like it was it was by no means a silver bullet but i think it's safe to say that there are more former militants who are like more or less out of the game at least mm -hmm. for now in the delta than there are in the northwest whereas like most of the sure. amnesties in the northwest have been very short-lived and, and and not that many bandits have kind of taken it and then you know really stayed uh stayed out of the game so to speak Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I mean, the, the problem with this question is that you always, when faced with this question, I, I'm always inclined to give the kitchen sink, right? So to speak, which <laughs> is that th this is a problem that's rooted in so many different issues. So like, you know, yeah. you can't, you can't address this without addressing corruption, justice, all that stuff. But yeah. I think that, you know, I, like you'd have to have a very kind of multi-tier kind of DDR process on, in terms of, you know, so demobilization, disarmament, yeah. reintegration with some sort of like federal body that oversees it, but then a lot of local nuances, mm -hmm. um, it would have to apply both to the bandits, but also to their, you know, adversaries, groups like the Ansakai. There needs yeah. to be a way to kind of take these, these rogue vigilantes and either kind of incorporate them more into the state security apparatus in a way that they're actually getting kind of oversight and training and, and, you know, to rein in their worst tendencies. And there is, there is some kind of precedent there with the CJTF in the Northeast, which, you know, again, I don't, I wouldn't claim it's a perfect organization today, but you know, yeah. I, I did a spent a good bit of time in Borno State, and you know, it does seem like compared to what the CJTF was a decade ago, it is a like 
a, a more disciplined force now. Mm. Um, and so there are some, you know, some possible kind of uh, lessons to be learned there. Again, it's not a perfect analogy in part because, you know, there's, I think, a much stronger ethnic dimension to the conflict in the Northwest than yeah. in the Northeast. Um, but, you know, so, so on the, you know, the DDR level, like it's worth pursuing, mm-hmm. it, right? Because like, even if the amnesties, you know, even if they're really, you know, they're horrible in many ways, right? You yeah. are rewarding people for violence. They're painful. Um, mm-hmm. And the amnesties that we've seen in the Northwest have not been sustainable. But like, you know, I don't think you can bomb your way out of the banditry mess. And so I think that eventually you do need some sort of DDR. Yeah. Um, and so I would say like after the DDR, though, you know, the other big thing is, is you know, resolving this issue of the, you know, the farmer herder conflicts. And so mm-hmm. then it becomes a whole question of NLTP and ranching and all that stuff. I think, you know, I, I'm not a specialist in that area again. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I would defer to other people, people who have more kind of insights into what the different communities kind of want, but it does strike me like, you know, kind of intuitively and just, you know, based on what I've heard that like, there is potential there for ranching if the government's serious about it. And if there's a lot of sensitization mm-hmm. um, of, of both communities, right? Cause I think a lot of herders are, you know, pretty resistant to, to changing their age old practices. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of farmers will see this as, you know, benefiting the herders over them. And so they'll see it as unfair. It of course becomes a whole, you know, political lightning rod, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you'll have you'll have politicians in Lagos or Port Arcourt saying, you know, oh, this ranching, you're rewarding the Fulani, and it's like, yeah. okay, like, you know, deal with your own mess first, right? This doesn't actually affect your state. I mean, it's like the mm-hmm. the governor of one of those southeastern states, I forget, like a year or two ago, you know, tried to make a big thing saying, like, ah, and I pledge, you know, we will not take a single book. Haram terrorists from Operation Safe Corridor. Mm. It's like, well, okay, but like, was, was there any plan to send Boko Haram guys to <laughs> or where, whichever state yeah. was like, I, like, you know, yeah. it's, 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 it's like, you know, it's yeah. like me saying, you know, and I, I, I will, I will, I will not let Putin buy me a Ferrari to try to, you know, burn my favor <laughs> in my commentary on the war on Ukraine. It's like, well, yeah. you know, that's, that's not really making a statement. Um, so, yeah. um, but I, I think, you know, some sort of very well thought out and kind of multi-tiered DDR combined with some, um, you know, combined with some uh, uh, serious, you know, kind of land reform, I think is is probably the best way to mitigate this. Um, I think in practice, like, you know, one of the other things that, you know, I, I, I harp on about warlords is that, mm. you know, warlords kind of move from being illegitimate to semi-legitimate. Right. Yeah. And we've seen this in the Delta. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Tom Polo gets the surveillance contracts. Farada Gogo is in the House of Reps. Ateke yeah. Tom is a chief. Mm-hmm. Asari Dakubo, like, walks around, you know, Port Arcourt with he's, his he's entourage. A public, he's a public intellectual. He's, yes, <laughs> intellectual. Um, so, you know, it's like these, right? And, like, that that's just going to happen. And it's... Yeah. And, you know, the, the Zamfara government has said multiple times, oh, you know, we're never we're never going to negotiate with these guys again. And and it's not just Zamfara, it's all the states. And then they go back and they do it. Right. And so we saw mm-hmm. it with this this, you know, in the past couple of months, first with Ado Alero being Turban, Sarkin Fulani and, and, yeah. Delto, and then recently with the reports about Turji, you know, and so like that stuff, like I'm under no illusions about what it means and how like how much it sucks in many ways. Cause these guys, you know, yeah. they, they're violent men. They've, they're, you know, they've done horrible things, 
but I've also just kind of come to the position that like, I, at least me as an outside observer, like, I don't like, you know, like most of all, I, I don't know what else I would suggest. Right. In yeah. some ways people are going to yeah. do what, and I think what's fascinating about the Otto Alero case was that that was a bit more, it seems like, like the state knew about it. The state government knew about it, permitted it to happen, then denied it. That was a total farce. Um, mm. But like, it does seem like there was genuine community buy-in there, like that it kind mm -hmm. of originated from people, you know, maybe community leaders, right? But it was like, it was not orchestrated in the state house in Gusell. That At least that's my understanding of it. And again, yeah. I left the country shortly thereafter, so maybe I'm a bit out of the loop. But like, I think what that shows is that like, if the state can't protect people, people are going to do whatever it takes for peace. Yeah, And yeah, yeah. I don't think, you know, me as a researcher or you as a podcaster can, you know, <laughs> cast too much shame on them for doing what yeah. they need to do to survive. No. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's the reality. Yeah, fair enough. Huh? And um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we might not fully agree with former President Donald Trump on everything, but, you know, where, where he was asked about, um, you know, Putin being a killer and he's like, you think our country's so innocent? Is, is is something I think applies here when we talk about, <laughs> you know, things like amnesties, uh, and uh, it's like, yeah, no one wants to pay killers, but we do that with our taxes and oil money, don't we? Uh, currently, yeah. so yeah, but, uh, yeah. yeah. Before, before you go inside, and, and before I forget, I was wondering. I mean, I mean, if you place bandits in terms of how much wealth, you know. The, the major ones or the big ones of um, <laughs> managed to amass, you, you, you know, um, James, how would you rate them side by side, say, the Tompolos of this world, the, the, the Kubos of this world, you know, just so that we get a sense of what we're grappling with here and and um, what it means for, for them in terms of how much they're, 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 they're going to be willing to fight for what it is that they think that they, they own these days yeah that's a great question honestly i can really only speculate um mm. i think yeah, that the, yeah. <laughs> okay yeah <let's> <laughs> um i i think the the temples of this world are are wealthier they're sitting on more they're sitting on a on a you know a hotter commodity um mm. right uh this is oil as opposed to cattle um i think that the bandits, you know, so long as they're in the bush, I mean, you do have bandits maintaining bank accounts and stuff. And there's even signs now that there's maybe more of an international dimension to it, that there's some, you know, cross-border financing going around. Um, I mean, there certainly is in, in, in the sense of even historically cattle rustlers, right? You steal cattle in Nigeria, you go sell it in a market in Niger because it's hard yeah. to trace and, you know, um, but I think the, the financial aspect of the banditry is really interesting and I think merits a lot more study um, yeah. because, it you know, we do know that bandits are operating bank accounts and that there's, you know, probably, you know, there's some collusion from relatively high or mid-level officials and level officials in some of these banks, you know, working with bandits. Um, but I think, you know, that said, like, right, the... I mean, you go to like, you know, Yenagoa, like General Africa has like a big ass house in, mm. in the capital, um, you know, yeah. that's and that's because, you know, these militants have kind of they've left the bush. Right. Um, for now, the bandits, so long as they're in the bush, they're not. Um, I mean, some of them are building big houses in their villages or whatever, but like, you know, they're not. They're not creating what was it like the the Escobar Ranch? I'm, I'm blanking. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But it's like they're not. 
they're not building these massive palaces that like the narcos in mexico do like they're they're living much more like you know militants in the bush um and like i said earlier like a lot of these gangs um you know when they get money they buy weapons right it's it's like a lot of i think a lot of this is more like they're not thinking long-term strategy for you know what's my investment portfolio going to be in 10 years they're thinking short term you know how do i survive how do i stay relevant um i think i think a lot of these bandits i think especially you know the younger ones are the ones who have just been kind of you know immersed in this violence since they were teenagers or whatever i think i think there's a pretty high degree of kind of nihilism for lack of a better word um yeah you know, and I've, I've chatted with a couple you know colleagues who who you know um also have kind of been you know interviewed bandits at bbc stuff like that and it's i think we agree that some of these guys they they're not really thinking long term they just, yeah. just have they're they're angry they they know violence that's the life they know and so um mm. yeah i think when when looking at the finances like it's it's simultaneously a very important aspect of all of this but it's also like you know it's not as simple as you know people on twitter will be like oh well these guys are just criminals they're just doing it for money it's like, well, yeah 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 that doesn't really explain everything right okay so it's premature to name this show bourgeois bandits um despite I, how nice I, that alliteration yeah. might sound yeah okay I, I, I regret to inform you <laughs> <laughs> not yet that's not fair yet. enough uh james we really appreciate the time you spent here and um yeah. I've just seen that the alert from your family members has dropped, so I think we can release you. Um, uh, okay, great. That's, that's, how, much, how much am I going for? Um, I don't want to be undervalued, you know? They said not to say. Yes. Uh, okay, that's fair sure yeah. Okay, uh, I hope no, I'm not James. disappointed. <laughs> yeah, go and ask the Nigerian police who helped drop it off. Drop off the road. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Uh, Thanks again for your time. And before we no, before we finally let you go, is there anything you want to plug or should is it uh, you know should we expect some future pieces on banditry? You mentioned the book, um, the CDD book, which we're both uh, actually working on. So are there yeah. any such projects to to keep an eye out for? Oh yeah, I mean it's I'm nervous because if I say it here, then that means I have to deliver. <laughs> uh, no, I no, like the the tentative plan now is is um, some stuff about uh you know based on my my field work in kind of those north central states so looking at the degree to which banditry from the northwest is maybe uh mixing with or kind of um impacting the existing conflicts in places like taraba plateau mm. so there you know there should be something on that before too long and then also you know i mentioned i've been to the delta um you know oh, so yeah. that was you know I'll, I'll be writing about that and i think there are definitely parallels uh mm. between banditry in the north and militancy in the delta um, I've learned from experience that uh, people don't always like uh, mm. when you draw comparisons to those. The people mm -hmm. on both from both regions will insist that their issue is different, but I, I maintain that there are some similarities, and so mm. might be unpacking that in some future work. Well, that sounds very exciting, and we'll look forward to that, and maybe having you back on to talk about some of that stuff. Um, I would love to. If if yeah. you'd be happy with that, okay, good. Yeah, see, Absolutely. yeah, you know, being held against your will is not always as um, oh, I, I wouldn't even syndrome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, I wouldn't even finish that one. Um, <laughs> James, <laughs> thanks again, man, and uh, yeah. yeah, look forward to talking soon. Yeah, thanks so much, yeah. Saeed, and yeah, it's been a real thanks, pleasure. Thanks, James. It was nice nice having you. Yeah. yeah.
Right. Well, maybe we'll catch you somewhere for one beer or um, yeah, some of the other kinds of things that uh, bandits enjoy. Um, exactly. I like yeah. that. I've started, I was given Kai Kai when I was in the Delta Yay. for the first time. So I know, yeah, yeah. It, it made, it like made my right face go numb like I was having a stroke. <laughs> but, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a Bielsa man now. Yeah. Well, oh, okay, this was in Bielsa, right? But, yeah, yeah. That's some of the, the strong stuff. So.